For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I hope you all know it before Advent is over, and I hope you all believe it, and I hope that it rescues you from perishing and gives you life now and forever, transforms your home, your work, your mission. Four D's, the danger, perishing, last week. The design, God's love, sending his son to rescue us from the perishing, today. Duty, believing, next week. And destiny, eternal life, Christmas Sunday morning. One of the ways that... uh, you come to a conviction about what's true and embrace something so that it makes a difference in your life, one of the ways you come to a conviction about what's true is by setting yourself to just look at it. Just look at it. Think about it. Consider it. Ponder it. To decide, is this so? What I want to do this morning and in all of these Advent mornings is to just help you do that with John 3.16 and the glories of God in this verse. Just look at it. Just look at it and consider it and ponder it. So we're focused on the second D this morning. The design of God in his love to send the Son For our rescue. And I see under this heading four realities. And I'll just focus your attention on them. When I I read the kind of books that help me most, they're not books that say wild and strange and new things. They're books that say old, wonderful things in such focused and concerted and repeated Ways from so many different angles that I suddenly wake up to the treasure in the old box. And that's what I would like to have happen here. The first thing I want to focus your attention on is this. There is a God. There is a God. Jesus teaches us here by the words at the beginning of John 3.16... For God, that there's a God. Now, don't hurry over that, okay? Jesus said everything he said in relation to God. Jesus did everything he did in relation to God. Jesus was a God-entranced human being. Sometime, just read through the Gospels asking What does Jesus teach about God? What does he show about God? Who is God in the life and in the mouth of Jesus? Jesus teaches us first that there is a God. Now there are a lot of reasons for believing in God. For believing that there's a God over us. One reason... To believe that there's a God is that Jesus believed that there was a God. 
and that Jesus is reliable. If, if somebody were to ask me this morning, because this is on my mind, some skeptic on the street, somebody in the neighborhood, you go to that church? You guys believe that there's a God? Why do you believe there's a God? My answer this morning would be because Jesus taught me that there's a God. And I have, in all that I have seen of Jesus in his life, all that I have seen of Jesus in his word, all that I have seen of Jesus in his character, inclines me to believe that Jesus is more trustworthy as a director about the existence of God than any philosopher or any theologian or any commentator or any friend I have ever known or ever met. And then I would simply return the question and I'd say, do you know anybody who's a more reliable guide about whether there's a God or not than Jesus? That would be my response. Do you know anybody this morning to whom you would turn to get advice about whether there's a God or not that has proved in your life to be more trustworthy than Jesus? I don't know anyone. I wouldn't go to my wife. I wouldn't go to my blessed father. I wouldn't go to my favorite teacher, Dan Fuller. I wouldn't turn to any of you. I would go straight to Jesus and I would say, is there a God? And Jesus would say, for God so loved the world. Jesus teaches there's God and Jesus is my teacher. Jesus has won my trust Everybody looks to somebody. Most look to themselves. The self is no more reliable than Jesus. Far less. Begin with God. Don't rush over it. There's a God. The world began with God. The world is sustained by God. And I am a person with a conscience, with a sense of justice, with a mind that contemplates uh, rational thoughts and speaks in sentences unlike any other being on the face of the earth and human beings and loves. And whence does that come? Molecular mutations? You may have that if you want it. If you want to give an account of your being... Your marvelous human being with conscience and justice and love and rationality and language and say it just was a blip in the mutations. You can have that. I think that's absolutely irrational. Irrational to the extreme. I will take God as the person who has always existed and brought me and you into being in his image that we might be for him, like him, and show him. It just hit me this morning as I was going over my message again. I wrote it in the, in the margin here. The meaning of my life is knowing and showing God. That's, that's it. The meaning of your life If you get in sync with God, the meaning of your life is knowing and showing God. So don't miss the second word of the verse. God is. God is. God is. Start there. Pause during the Advent season now and then and just say to yourself, God is.
God is. Number two, God has a son. God has a son. Now, that is amazing. (laughs) He's got a son. That's absolutely incredible. The Muslims hear it and they sneer. Who did he have sex with? They say, I just read an article three three weeks ago. How to deal with Muslim people about the Son of God. Who did he marry? Had sex with Mary? An angel? It's astonishing to say God has a son. He's got no wife from all eternity. He's got a son. What amazing revelation in this verse. He gave his only begotten son. God has a son. Just stop and let it hit you. God has a son. It's amazing. He calls him in this verse, depending on the version you have, his only begotten. I know that one and only is one translation. Only is in another. Only begotten is in another. One and only begotten is in another. There is a word for only in Greek. That's not the word that's here. Monos. You know that word? Monogenes is what's here. Only born, only begotten. That's no accident. It's only used by John. It's only used about Jesus. And I think the meaning of it is this. Jesus is not a son by virtue of being made, and he's not a son by virtue of being adopted. He's a son by virtue of being begotten. Angels are called sons of God because they were made by God and never fell. You and I who believe are called sons of God by virtue of adoption and union with the Son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus Christ is the Son, the one and only begotten Son, by virtue of being begotten. Now, what is that? What is that? Well, it's a human analogy, it's a a metaphor, but it has a meaning. And the meaning, as C.S. Lewis points out, I think rightly, is that rabbits, rabbits beget rabbits, and horses beget horses, and humans beget humans, and God begets God. Not man and not angels. Men make statues. Men make poems. They beget men. God makes humans, makes worlds, makes angels. He begets God. That's the point here. There was one only and begotten God's Son, Jesus Christ. And there never was a time when the Son was not begotten by the Father. 
Do not think of the Son coming into being. The Son was eternally begotten by the Father. The Son stood forth as a perfect representation, image, equal of the Father from all eternity so that the amazing thing that we're saying is that for God to have a son perfect in equality and representation and essence with the Father is what it means to be God. And so what this verse contains that there is a God and that this God stands forth in at least two. The Holy Spirit's not in this verse, so we'll leave him for another time. But he's there. And we could talk about him. But the Son, the only begotten Son, is in this verse. And I want you to know your God this Advent season. I want you to think and focus and commune with your God, who from all eternity has stood forth in two persons, a Father generating, begetting eternally a Son, standing forth from Him and facing Him and reflecting Him as a perfect image and representation and equal of all that is in, is in the Father. Our faith is an awesome faith. Know your God. Know your God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One divine essence in unity. It is an amazing thing that we confess. The Father has a Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Christmas. So Jesus Christ, the Word, the Son of God, was in the beginning with the Father and was God from all eternity. Number three. First, there is a God. Second, He has a Son. Third, he loves. God loves. Oh, how we take these things so for granted. That there should be a God is an awesome thing. That he should have a son is a staggering thing. And that this God should love is a speechless wonder. For God so loved... The God who exists loves. Say many things about God in your life. Say many things to your children about God. Say many things during Advent about God. But say this, when you say anything, say this. God loves. God loves. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Which means at least this. I don't know what you take that to mean. God is love. But it means at least this. God's or giving to others what is good for them and serving others in a beneficial way is closer to what God is than getting 
or being served. I mean, that's stunning. Because we are spring-loaded to give and serve him in the hopes that he might like us. And the whole point of the gospel, especially 1 John, is herein is love, not that we did anything for him, like love him, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. I think when John says, what I have learned from knowing Jesus is that God is love, meaning giving to people what is good for them and serving people for their benefit is far closer to the heart and essence of what God is than getting from people or being served by people. And that's why I lift up this glorious truth that God doesn't need us so often because it's so close to the heart of God that he doesn't need you. He loves you. In a sense, you might say, he needs to love you in order to be God because he is love. He would not be God if he did not love. Isn't that awesome? It needs to break through some of you especially because we, by virtue of Satan's opposition, by virtue of rearing in certain kinds of families, by virtue of our sin, all three of those conspire to make us feel unloved by God. And Jesus says, this God loved. And then in John 3.16, it tells us how, just to fill out the words so that we don't put our own meaning into it, it says, God so loved. Now the word so there is not a quantitative word. It is a word describing the way he loved. He's not saying God loved the world so much. He's saying that God loved the world in such and such a way. And then he defines the way that he gave his only begotten son. And when he gave him, he was giving him up to death. He came to his own and his own received him not. God knew that. He gave Jesus, he gave his treasured son, he gave his most precious possession to the world in order that he might be rejected and that he might die. The kind of love that the Father has is a giving love that is giving more preciousness than we could ever dream. It is a powerful love and a costly love and a rugged love and a dangerous love and a painful love. And Christmas is all about celebrating that love. Finally, number four. God loves the world. God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So they're not just... There's not just one way that you see the kind of love that God has in this verse. There are two ways. One way is that he gave his son. Now the son is the most precious treasure that God could have reached for to give. So his love is measured by the treasure that he chose to give and therefore it is infinite. 
There's a second way to measure the love of God, and that is the lack of worth in those to whom He gave the Son. Namely, the the world. And you take those two things together, that Jesus is of infinite value, and that we have no merit and no desert of that gift at all, and you put those two together, and you know God. You know God. You know what love is. Had we been like God in sinless perfection, the gift would have said love, but not the kind of love that it says when we are sinful. The context here in verses 14 and 15 is very, very important. It's a reference back to Moses. The situation, you remember, in Numbers 21 was that the people said, we're sick of this manna. That's the way we respond to the love of God very often. We're sick of this manna. Manna, manna, manna burgers, you know. And, and, and God said, here come the snakes. And snakes, all through the, through the uh, congregation. And they began to die. They were dropping everywhere. And Moses intercedes with God and pleads with God. And in his love, he relents in his judgment. And he says to Moses, put up a pole. And on the pole, put a brass serpent. And tell the people, now get this. What do you have to do? Tell the people, look at the pole. Look at the pole. And the poison will go out of your leg. And you'll be saved. And that's what Jesus picks up on here. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may have eternal life. The people, the world, the world to whom God gives the infinitely valuable Son are people who are like that. We're sick of manna. We're sick of the sun coming up. We're sick of all this stuff. We're sick of anything God is toward us. We want to go back to Egypt. And he says, raise up Christ in in their midst. And if you raise him up, people will be saved if they just look. There's a God. He has a son. He loves, and he loves the world. And the upshot of that for us this morning is in this great word, whoever. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes. So this morning what God wants me to do from this verse is lift up Jesus on the pole, as it were, on the cross, before everybody. You're sort of a little world in microcosm here. Before everybody. And say, this is for all kinds of sinners. This is for all degrees of sinners. This is for all extent of sinning. This is for the world. Believe, look, and you will be saved. No perishing. We close with the illustration of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher in the last century, and he was 16 years old, and he was not converted, and he was walking to church one Sunday. The snow came so heavy, he turned in a little Methodist chapel, 15 people there. The preacher couldn't make it. A layman stood up and preached. He took his text from Isaiah 45:22, which says, Turn to me, look to me, and be saved all the ends of the earth. 
And the, and the layman didn't have any sermon ready, so all he knew to do was repeat the text over and over and over again. Look to the Lord, look to the Lord, and he looked straight at this boy sitting in the back 16 years old, and he said, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And this is what Spurgeon wrote. I saw at once the way of salvation. Like as the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting. Now get this, because this applies to some of you. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. And there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. So my plea with you this morning is, look. Look to Jesus. Believe on Jesus and you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we close now, I pray that you would move by your Spirit and assist those who do not believe in their faith. I pray that they would have the experience of Charles Spurgeon, who when he heard the word, look, look, just look at the hanging Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, given in love, that we might live. Look, would you grant that they believe. And as our prayer team stand here at the front afterwards, grant, I pray, that there would be a power of prayer for every need in this room. Through Christ I pray. Amen.